The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Revenant Twitter a buzz after hashtag boohoo movement founder, whose claim she is a haint and not a ghost, busted after a night of poltergeisting the graveyard of her former lover. Cargo pants redeemed as mass market personal storage devices. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. Hey, we would be extremely grateful if you would take a bit of time and go over to iTunes or wherever you get the podcast and give the Bain Free Radio Hour a five-star rating. And if you want to give us any suggestions or comments, you can always email me at podcast at bain.com. Thank you very much. This time we have the first of a two-part interview with Tom Kratman, who discusses his new novel in the Carrera series, Days of Burning, Days of Wrath. This is a culminating volume in this long-running series, which brings to definitive climax the invasion of Carrera's Balboa by the venal and corrupt Tarin Union and its allies, including the Earth Peace Fleet Admiral Wallenstein. It's a great read, and Tom Kratman will tell us much more about it. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. Hey, all month long, get discounts on Larry Correa's Monster Hunter International Series eBooks. Save over 28% on Monster Hunter Siege and Monster Hunter Guardian. That's a savings of $2 per ebook on these, the latest entries in the series. Plus, save $1 on all ebooks in the Monster Hunter International series, all of them. These discounts will be available wherever Bain ebooks are distributed, including Amazon, BNN, Apple Books, and of course at the Bain ebooks site at bain.com. And whoa, hey, the Bain mass market paperbacks are now available at booksellers everywhere. Out in August is River of Night by John Ringo and Mike Massa. On the run from the zombie horde that destroyed New York City, Tom Smith and his team head for safety in the Cumberland Valley of Tennessee. But even if they make it, which is by no means a certainty, they'll have to find a way to restart civilization. Even so, Tom Smith has a plan. Also now in mass market paperback edition is Tiger Burning by T.C. McCarthy. A Burmese dream warrior flees to the farthest reaches of the solar system only to find a lost secret weapon system that may help his people redeem themselves and may just prove the salvation of the human race against alien invasion. Finally out in mass market now is My Enemy's Enemy by Robert Butner. The elite terrorist known as the ASP sets his sights on America's heartland. Meanwhile, ambitious aircraft historian Cassandra Gooding and irascible Colorado cowboy Frank Luck unlock an aviation relic's dark secret and discover the terrible truth the ASP may be closing in on 
a secret Nazi superweapon thought to be nothing more than myth. That is the Nazi bomb. My Enemy's Enemy by Robert Butner. This is a really good one. Check this out. Tiger Burning by T.C. McCarthy, also a great book. And River of Night by John Ringo and Mike Massa are available now in mass market format at booksellers everywhere. And that means the ebook prices also dropped this month on these great science fiction novels. So check them out. This is part one of a two-part interview with Tom Kratman. Part two will be available on next week's podcast. I want to welcome Tom Kratman back to the podcast. Hello, Tom. Hello, Tony. Give you a little background. Tom Kratman grew up in the People's Republic of Massachusetts, reading military history. He joined the army and stayed a regular army infantryman most of his life, his adult life, returning, although we don't know that for sure. You could, um, and you went back to college. Did you, um, did you enlist and then go back to college? Is that how it worked? Or? I, um, my high school was kind of a strange place. I understand it's decayed quite a bit, but at the time, Boston Latin was about 12th in the country to include the high-end um, schools like Groton and Grafton and the two Phillips. And um, it was a public school, but it was a, a test-in school. You had to test in. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, that year, my scores were the highest, so I'm told. Um, and it was just just a bitch. <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we usually had at least one teen suicide in any given year. Uh, the workload was immense. Summer vacations didn't exist. For summer vacation, you got a huge reading list to get done before you got back to school. Um, it, 635 years old at the time, it's uh, about 385 years old now. Yeah, 385, I think. And um, at the end of my junior year, I was just sick of it. I didn't want to do that shit anymore, so I enlisted in the Army. Uh. And... Uh, Spent four years in, got a couple of years of college, knocked off while I was in. And then the Army gave me a scholarship, sent me back to Boston College, and I took ROTC and got commissioned a couple of years later. And you were, I mean, you were in as an officer for many years, and you, you um, were, uh, didn't you, you retired a lieutenant colonel, I guess. Was right. that during, was that the regular stint before you became a lawyer? Or no, um, after the first Gulf War, I just didn't see a lot of future in violently and militantly aggressive anti-communism anymore. You know, they were over pretty much. The so-called so end of history. Yeah, <laughs> well, go. it didn't quite work out that way, of course. Yeah. But uh, since I've been back a couple of times since then. Um, so I got out and went to law school. And then I practiced law for a while, really hated it. Uh, the, the study of... Uh, much more, someone much more famous man than, than I, and I don't remember his name, once said that um, the study of law was sublime, but the practice is sordid. And that's pretty much correct. I, I kind of enjoyed the study of it, kind of, uh, even if I didn't really like law school. Um, but practice, practicing it was kind of miserable. Some people like it, the poor soulless bastards, but I did. <laughs> well, uh, we won't go into all that you did, but you did a whole lot of stuff uh, 
um, being, uh, you went back in and, and were a lawyer as well in the law, in the army, right? Um, not exactly. Um, the last, my terminal tour was at the war college and I had a law degree by then and I was sort of in-house counsel to the peacekeeping Institute, which was not perhaps the best possible match. Um, but no, for the army, I was an infantryman, uh, almost entirely. Well, after, uh, after all of this, uh, you, uh, started writing, um, you probably wrote before, but, but our first book at Bain was a state of disobedience and uh, caliphate and the series consisting of a desert called peace, uh, carnifex, the Lotus eaters, the Amazon Legion, come and take them, the rods and the ax pillar of fire by night. And, um, this is the Carrera series and the anthology, uh, Terra Nova, which is, um, is out um in uh, mass market yeah and or is it coming out uh i think i believe it is out about uh, two months ago maybe yeah actually yes we would have brought it out before pillar of fire in fact it's sitting up there on my on my mass market uh shelf um you wrote some novels with John Ringo and found that you didn't really like to co-author that much, as I recall. Uh, Watch on the Rhine, Yellow Eyes, and the Tuloriad. Um, um, they're, they're, not, they're not really co-authored at all. You can ask. John said it in public several times. It was supposed to be Tom Prattman writing in John Ringo's Puzzling Universe, but Jim Bain, for marketing reasons, didn't do it that way. And he didn't tell either of us either. So, um, yeah, they're not, they're not written to an outline. It's just John letting me play in his universe. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I mean, that's a, that's a, you know, a, a time honored, uh, publishing sharecropping, uh, uh, co-authoring move <laughs> that Jim Bain did. Um, yeah. In fact, uh, editing, putting an anthology together was an experiment on my part to see if I could work with other people in an other than military. And I wasn't really great about it necessarily in a military environment, but, um, in a civilian environment, I had my doubts. It worked out reasonably well. And we'll probably get into what I'm doing with that recently discovered ability. Yeah. Uh, which, which, by which you mean Terra Nova, which was the, um, the first of, of these anthologies that are set in your world, the Carrera yeah. universe. Um, you also have that three book uh, military um, adventure series called the Countdown series, which are really great books. Um, and they're all, you know, still for sale, of course. Yeah, now it looks... Go ahead. Nobody knew where to stack them at Barnes and Noble. I, I went into probably a dozen different Barnes and Nobles, and I found them under science fiction because of Bain, under general fiction, uh, they, they were anywhere because they didn't fit, I guess, what the minions in Barnes and Noble really understood. Yeah. So, well, it's hard to it's hard to make a decision when you're doing the uh, BISAC BISAC uh, classification system to um because you want your readers who uh mostly think of you now as a science fiction reader to be able to find these books um at the same time the readers who would be reading them in uh general fiction should also be able to find them so um it may not be the it may not be the kids fault that stock the shelves more than uh, just trying to figure out how to classify things it's it's crazy. Yeah, I, I selling. It's getting crazier. I, I didn't leave a trail of bodies behind me when I looked. I just thought it was kind of <laughs> odd and funny. Well, 
I don't know. But now uh, there is science fiction out from you. Now at booksellers everywhere is this great book, which is uh, Days of Burning, Days of Wrath by Tom Crapman. And this is a this is a big culminating book in the um, cu plot culminating book in the um, in the Carrera series. Um, can you maybe we should just start in on on a brief uh, of the milieu and the larger setting of the series. There's a really great essay at the beginning of this book that sets it up as well for, for those that, that want to catch up. Who are the Noahs? Um, where is Terra Nova? What is this place and, and what has become of it? Um, you know, as briefly as, as, as one briefly can do and do it a little justice. So. We don't know what the Noahs are. We don't know what they look like. We don't know where they came from. The only, we can infer their existence from the project they set up. Um, we can infer from that that they've been to Earth at some point in time, probably at least five million, five and a half million years before the story begins. Uh, we found a few inert um, artifacts that appear to be theirs, one of which looks like a spatula, and though I never said it, it's a spatula. Um, and, uh, you know, we think they might be environmentalists, um, maybe really strong environmentalists, but we don't know. Um, we infer their project from what they left behind, which was a gate between Earth and what we come to call Terra Nova. Um, a whole bunch of life that disappeared on Earth anywhere from half a million to about five and a half million years ago. And that includes things like the uh, the Foros Racos, the terror birds, who are about eight, nine feet tall and mean. Uh, Carcharodon megalodons are out there. Sabertooths are there. Um, there's also some uh, engineered life forms. One of the Antanii, the, uh, the moon bats, whose nighttime cry is moon bat, moon bat, moon bat. And they're foul, septic-mouthed, flying lizards who are nocturnal and feast on the tender eyes and brains of the sick and the young. Any idea who I'm talking about? When I... Those are the, uh, uh, the moon bats sort of do that. Yeah, the moon bats do that. The moon that. bats do, yes. <laughs> There's some uh, other things. There's some berries that you named. Uh, right, the, uh, that's another clue as to who I'm screwing with there. Uh, there's the bolshe berries, the progressive vines, and the transy trees. And the fruit of, the, of all of those is, they all appear to be genetically engineered. Um, they're poisonous to intelligent life. Um, they only kill the smart. <laughs> they, ki they kill the smart. Um, and that's kind of why I think you could make a pretty good case that the knowers were... Um, were mostly thinking environmentalism rather than a hunting preserve, is that they didn't want uh, an intelligent group to arise that would exterminate these animals that they've carefully preserved, extremely carefully preserved, because in fact, they changed the geology of the planet, the surface geology of the planet, to provide weather, I'll, I'll, we'll talk about that maybe a little later, but to provide weather in which these critters could you know, thrive. So let's talk about the geography of, of Terra Nova. Then it it has some similarities to the place where the Noahs grabbed all the stuff. Yeah, that's uh, when I was first writing it. I don't, I don't remember who sent it to me. It was a fan though, who sent me an article that I think was called "We're All Panamanians," 
Um, and of course, Balboa, the central place in the series, was settled by people from Panama. Well, I read the article, and apparently the rise of the Isthmus of Panama not only allowed life forms to, from, the south, from South America to head north and from North America to head south, but actually changed global weather patterns. And that had a great deal to do with how animals evolved and which ones survived and which ones didn't. And I thought about that, I thought about it, you know? If these critters who can create a, a gateway between, well, as far as we, we don't know where the gateway is between, we don't know where Terra Nova is. We don't even know if it's in the same universe. Um, but if they want these critters to survive, they're going to have to have to, to make sure that the weather is such that they can survive. So they apparently moved continents around, raised islands, dropped others to create the weather pattern that would allow these things to survive. I had no intention when I first started for this planet to look like Earth. None whatsoever. But once I saw that article, I realized it had to. And I think because, I got yeah, it when I'd already yeah. painted myself into a corner as far as the life forms and the Noahs. There was no getting around it. It had to be modified to suit them. So the geography produced the, the, the destiny of the, I mean, it wouldn't have worked for these things to survive without something similar. Yeah, without broadly similar weather. Yeah. So, um, all right. So we have we have these uh, really interesting uh, archaic uh, life forms, and humans uh, show up. They come, and the first time they come, they um, they have a you know a multi-culti ship come tries to get there uh, to bring in something doesn't work out on that. Uh, yeah, that, that's mentioned in, um, in interludes in the first volume of Desert Call Peace. And then Vivian Raper, uh, my Oxford writer chick, um, did a story in the anthology uh, in a lot more detail on what happened. Um, basically, as it turned out, no, we just can't all get along. Sorry, Rodney. Uh, so it didn't end up being a, uh, a, a UN fantasy utopia that got settled on Terra Nova, but a bunch of nation states. Right. Well, uh, when the first colon, the first international internationalist to colonization attempt was made, it broke down into basically shipwide civil war and everybody but a few, relatively few people who managed to escape died on the ship. But once word of that got back, nobody was going to be willing to volunteer to go to Terra Nova. So they split up the planet, which was relatively easy to do because the surface was similar enough. Um, the UN split it up among the various other um, super nationals like NAFTA, um, the EU, um, the Russian re reborn Russian Empire. And they split it up among nation states. Everybody got their little chunk, except Australia, they got screwed. Um, why? Well, when the Noahs were, there, were here, there was, no, there was no intelligent life on Australia yet. So there was no need to transport any animals to Terra Nova. So they didn't bother raising an island for them. And how they made the weather work out, eh, they're very, very bright and very capable. I'll just leave it to them to assume they did. Yeah, I, I never thought about that. I guess there's not an Australia analog. <laughs> in the there's a New Zealand analog. Um, and, That's probably uh, where the, a lot of the moon bats roost. 
<laughs> well, the the uh, the Aussies, um, we let the Aussies come in, and there's only a few hints of that in uh, in the book. One is in mention of the city Gag and Die. Nobody but the Australians or me could come up with the name of a city called Gag and Die, <laughs> from someone um, eating the fruit of the transy tree or the progressive vine and dying from it. So, all right, um, we've got, uh, when you have divisions that have formed like they have, then you have the possibility for conflict and conflict indeed arose, especially because they transported all these, these cultural issues from earth. What's earth like now? Oh, it's, it's a shit show. Um, and, and you do see it actually in a couple of places, but the big place you see it is when Marguerite Wallenstein goes back to Earth um, in the Lotus Eaters. And even she doesn't know it. it. It was bad enough when she left, but it's decaying rapidly. Uh, whole areas are falling to barbarism on Earth and United Earth, the consensus, doesn't have the ability to reclaim them. Um, and it, it's run by the same folks who are largely corrupt and incompetent Correction, they're, they're competent only in corruption. Uh, think, for example, Kofi Annan's grandson and his tax evasion scheme. Um, I've, I've worked with the UN. There are some good people there, there really are. I mean, I don't agree with them, but at least they're conscientious and sincere and try really hard. But for the most part, no, they're incompetent and they're corrupt. Um, you know, think of the, the people running the UN or the EU. Um, various progressive human rights NGOs. Marcos Melitzas, AKA Koss, Daily Koss, he wrote a little thing one time where he mentioned that his, the most important thing to him wasn't politics, it was his family. You know, it wasn't particularly not progressive politics, but his family. Well, you know, interestingly enough, about 95% of the millionaires in China are the children of high party cadres in the Communist Party. Geez, I wonder how that happened. You know, they're the kind of people who are running um, old earth. Uh, have you ever noticed whenever there's a, a, a news story about slavery in the U.S., I mean, recent slavery in the U.S., when you dig a bit, you'll find it's some diplomat working for the U.N. or out of an embassy in Washington. You know, that's what those kind of people are. Think, for example, of Dominique Strauss-Kahn. He doesn't just rape poor, helpless third world maids in New York hotel rooms. No, no, he goes out after French girls, too, connected French girls, because he's better connected than they are. Um, or Peter Daglish, bright light of, I think, UNICEF, um, sort of a Canadian hero. Uh, they gave him some kind of honor in Canada. He founded his own charity, Street Kids International. He's serving nine years in Nepal for raping two boys. He should well, have this, These guys are like the definitions of rent sinkers. Of which? Of, of rent seekers. <laughs> the, yeah. Oh, they're worse than that. No, no, they're a lot worse than that. So uh, there's, what are the political, so it's like the UN rules earth. Uh, there's also some, uh, some, some radicalism, some, uh, um, some not so nice areas that are, um, that, that have just gone back to the, back to seed and, and tribalism, right? Is it? On, earth, on old earth? Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, North America, for example, is mostly fallen to barbarism, a little bit that isn't covered by the Dahlonega Glacier. Yeah, it's a little dig at global warming as long as we're on the subject. 
<laughs> well, there was climate change. There was climate change. We went into that partial ice age. Yep. Changed the other way. All right. So, um, so what happened? Who's Carrera? How did he uh, come to be the the main military dude of Balboa? And oh. uh, um, he became the main military uh, career. I, I need to give a little background on it. He was raised, I only hinted at this in a couple of places, but he was raised in a very progressive environment, which as children will tend to do, he rejected um, and sought out the, the military on his own, um, much to, to the disgust of his family. If, um, he's um, a sort of half lawful evil, half lawful good, but he's not a lawful neutral. He's evil or he's good, he doesn't, he's not in the middle. Um, I didn't design him to fit uh, Dungeons and Dragons, but it's just kind of how it turned out. He's sort of a useful sociopath, which is to say he's not really a sociopath at all. He's perfectly capable of thinking as other human, of other human beings as morally significant creatures. He just doesn't think of everyone else on the, that walks on two legs as being a human being. You know, if you're on his side, you're a human being. If you're female, you're a human being, probably. Um, if you're an enemy, you're not a human being. If you're someone who aids an enemy, you're not a human being. He feels no moral obligations to you whatsoever. Um, he's also kind of the anti-Jack Ryan, and I, that deserves a little explanation. I used to enjoy Tom Clancy's writing. Of course, he's dead now. He's not going to be writing anymore. Um, but Clancy did two things that just turned me off. And I, I got past the first one and could still read, but the second one, after that, I couldn't read anything he wrote. And the first one was when that uh, goody two shoes, Jack Ryan, prevented the president from nuking an Iranian city in reprisal for them trying to bring a plague upon us. I thought that was bullshit. Um, and, and see, unlike Jack Ryan, you know, I really am East Coast Irish. And unlike him, uh, as a fictional character, I really did graduate from Boston College. And it just didn't strike me as very credible. But where he totally lost me was when um, he had a chance to kill the man who had machine gunned his wife and little girl. And again, once again, Irish, East Coast Irish, Boston College, East Coast Irish, and he didn't do it. After that, I just lost, he just lost any credibility with me whatsoever. You know, um, that, that was Clancy writing to an audience who wanted to be told nice things. It wasn't Clancy trying to be realistic. And after that, every time I had a moral dilemma, I asked myself, what would Jack Ryan do? And then Carrera did the opposite. I see. So uh, he, he, the first thing that happened to him was that, um, it, well, he got married and um, to yeah, a woman who had, who, who was an heiress, but she married for love instead. She married this guy, Carrera. Well, yeah, he, he came for money, but he didn't really have money because he was sort of cut off. Um, and yeah, she's, from, she's well connected from her country. Um, fairly well, you know, yeah, fairly wealthy. Um, doesn't have the same kind of money that, that Carrera is. Uh, initially, his name is Hennessy. Um, her family doesn't have the kind of money that his family has, but, you know, they're, they're pretty well off, and it's old money, too. Um, but it's like, he sees her and just, that's it. That's the one I want to marry. And he's pretty forceful and direct, and she marries him. And they have three kids and a fourth is on the way uh, and 
she is up visiting his um, his family. He doesn't go to see them, but she does because blood matters to her. And uh, she's killed in a terror attack. She and all the kids, including the unborn one, are killed in a, in a terrorist attack. And once again, he's not all that tightly wrapped. She was able to control his his baser instincts, and um, and general vindictiveness. He'd he'd be whatever pleased her. But she's gone, and he's not under control anymore. And the people who killed her are about to discover what happens when someone like that is no longer under anyone's control, and it's their fault. And he has uh, the wherewithal to, uh, to, to raise some forces to fight with him. Um, uh, at the last minute, his uncle, who controls the family finances, makes him the sole heir. Um, so uh, a brief summary is he makes them pay pretty completely for, um, for this. Yeah, he wages a private world war. He crucifies them by the hundreds. Um, their leader, Which is in the book, uh, What a Desert Called Peace, this and uh, it, it's um, Carnifex. It's really in, done in detail in Carnifex at the very end. Uh, he nukes a city and pins the blame on the terrorists. Um, yeah, he's, <laughs> he, he's not under control. Yeah. Uh, but then he remarries. <laughs> yeah. He finds the beautiful lords, um, or lordess. What uh, bring us to Balboa? And uh, so he's fought for the Federated States, which is sort of a, a U.S. analog as a as a hired gun, right? Um, well, no, he's not. He has fought for the Federated States as an officer in their army. Okay. In fact, he fought Balboa as an officer in their army. In fact, he assaulted a place that his best friend was defending as an officer in their army. Um, but after that, he becomes a, somewhere between a mercenary and an auxiliary. Initially, he starts with as a mercenary, although he's got his own agenda, of course. Um, but as his legion becomes um, the armed forces of Balboa, legally, the relationship changes a little bit. He, they become auxiliaries rather than mercenaries. Like the Hessians, who weren't mostly Hessian in our revolution were auxiliaries. They were hired by Great Britain and rented by their own states. Uh, an auxiliary is, is a, a professional soldier who's rented by one state for the use of another. So the, the he is not, uh, all right, by the time that he's, he's settled down in the Isthmus nation, um, he's, he's no longer, uh, an auxiliary uh he's he's prepared i guess set us what what is the what is the geopolitical situation so that we can understand it, it seems we're at a, a climatic moment there are um there there are final battles that are that are going to break during uh um days of burning days of wrath He's got this adopted nation, um, and um, all around us is uh, sort of slide to totalitarianism. It's taken uh, it's taken portions of Earth. Earth wants to to basically export it here. Can you 
where what's the the geopolitics that he is in um domestically or internationally well i mean most specifically like what he's he knows that um somebody wants to take balboa um they have he's he's known this war was setting up um he anticipated it and when they attacked he was ready this is what happened in pillar of fire by night yeah it's a lot worse than that he he's been preparing there's a line in um in carnifex where he's reading a letter from someone i don't remember whom and he mentions he's been planning a war with the Torin union for five years um now the Torin union um I think I know who they are uh, in in a way, but well, we know who settled them anyway. Yes. Europeans settled them. Yes. And of course, Europa was carted off by a bull. And Taurus is, of course, a bull. Mm-hmm. And if you flip Europe upside down, it looks a bit like a bull with an erection. I never thought of that, but it must. <laughs> So maybe the astronauts probably think that all the time. So, the, all right. So uh, the Torn Union is not exactly the bad guys, but they are the guys that are attacking. Um, some of uh, them are, well, some of them are good bad guys and some of them are real bad guys, but, but they are civil- needlessly attacking. Mostly the civilian politicos are bad guys. Yes. Most of the soldiers, I mean, even Janier, who commands for the most part, yeah, he's an asshole to begin with. He is, but you know, humiliation and uh, introspection cause him to become a much more decent human, uh, even admirable character. Uh, and he has some soldierly qualities too. Just because he gets out generaled um, doesn't mean that he's an idiot. He's not. Uh, his plan for uh, taking out the legions is credible based on what he knows. And if Carrera hadn't been able to keep 11 or 13,000 cadets hidden, um, it probably would have worked. But he was able to move them where, where they needed to be and keep them hidden so that what looked like bait was a baited ambush. And the kids bought enough time for the rest of the army to mobilize and there just weren't enough Torrens in Balboa to resist them. They, they got swamped by a quarter of a million troops. That gives him a bunch of prisoners, which allows him to buy time to finish his, remember, he's been planning this thing for about 15 years at this point. Uh, it allows him to buy, it buys, buys him time so he can finish his preparations to finish up the war. He ends up having to fight, I shouldn't say having to fight because he wants it that way, but uh, he ends up fighting the Torin Union and the Zhang Empire at the same time. He manipulates the Zhang into joining the war to some extent because he doesn't think the Torans will fight unless they've got a big ally they can count on. Um, why does want, why does why does the Torin Union want to attack uh, take Balboa? What are they going to get out of it? That well, they, they're being kind of pushed to by Marguerite Wallenstein, the um, the High Admiral of the Peace Fleet. Right from Earth, yes. From Earth, yes, and she's doing that. She she's got a pretty decent plan too which is to create a new earth, a Terra Nova, that is broken up into five roughly equal power blocks that will stymie each other indefinitely. And that will keep Terra Nova from eventually figuring out how to get rid of her fleet and use the transit way to get to old earth and conquer it, which is something that old earth is terrified of. You know, and her obligations, 
are to her own people. There's, there's no real, you know, problem there. Um, she wants the war. She may not be thinking of it this way, but the way I was thinking of it is um, the way Germany used the Franco-Prussian War, the successful Franco-Prussian War, to create Germany. Or to some extent, the way we use the Spanish-American War to bury some antagonism still left over from the Civil War. You know, it's, that's what nation states do. That's what successful and good nation states do. They win in war. If you can't do that, you're not a nation state or you're not a successful one anyway. So um, she wants to create a, create a Terra Nova where, you know, that, that will never be a threat to her people or her planet. And she wants to use that success to go back and change her plan. Um, you know, I've never said whether she intends a coup um, to just take over the government and fix it to the way she thinks it ought to be, or whether she just intends to play politics. She's not that good at politics. Um, she's probably going to go launch a coup once she's successful enough to get to think she'll have enough backing. So, and I love that you call it the, the Earth Peace Fleet. <laughs> well, and, and high military in space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there, there's a lot of very complex smears going on in, the, in that particular. I mean, it's sneering at peacekeeping. It's sneering at what amounts to war making in the guise of peacekeeping. It's sneering at failed peacekeeping because they're unwilling to make war like Rwanda, for, for example. Um, and the, the whole, another UN snare, it's high commissioner this and high representative that, and, you know, they'd, they'd call them princes and dukes and earls if they could. Uh, so it's high admin. But there's also is a royalty in the game. So Wallenstein has engineered this, but, but the Tarn Union thinks that they that this will be a pushover in a way. Um, they attack; it's not doesn't go well in pillar fire. And at this point, um, the the Zong have entered, and they are the Asian, the big East Asian land power. Um, and uh, what is their uh, po political setup? Because uh, their empress is very important in, in the novel. Well, officially, there's an emperor in charge, um, but unofficially behind the scenes, the empress is completely in charge. Uh, and I used, for model for that, I used CZ. Last, she wasn't really empress, I don't think, but um, the Manchu ruler at the time of the Boxer Rebellion, who ran everything, including her son, who was emperor, from behind the scenes. There, there's a wonderful... Uh, I think it's available in both Chinese and Japanese, but there's a wonderful mini series that I've watched parts of on YouTube about her. <laughs> and she's just a, a marvelous, marvelously tough bitch. Um, she's also Wallenstein's lover. And Wallenstein is a bit Wallenstein of a being the admiral of the peace. Of she, yep. She's, she's a bisexual, but she probably, probably swings a little more towards women. And she's a subby. Why is she a subby? That goes to Crapman's unified theory of, of odd sex, which is that people who are forced into molds they aren't entirely comfortable with um, will find balance um, by using sex to sort of purge themselves. 
So when you find some some woman who, or man for that matter, who really likes to be tied up and spanked, the odds are good that they're in charge of something important or they're high-ranking politicians, but they're not entirely comfortable with that. It's not really what's... They may do it for the power, but they don't get the same kind of personal satisfaction from it. So they tend to use sex for balance. She's a bit like that. She's in charge of peace fleet. It's a lot of responsibility. She's the only person who can cause her entire planet to be conquered as a result of an afternoon's mistake, right? And so she and the Empress are, you know, a, a dom subby sort of pair. Um, I didn't ever really make it clear until the last volume, but the Empress really does love love Wallenstein. Yeah, I mean, it is actually a, a, a genuine emotional relationship as well as um, a, a way to get out some uh, tensions. <laughs> did, did you catch the horror of the revenge? Oh, I shouldn't discuss the horror of the revenge. There is revenge, yes. <laughs> but, I mean, it's it's such a wonderful mirror. And Carrera knows about this at this point because he's got a spy that... that um, is, oh yes, <laughs> is in there, um, and we know about her. Tell us a little bit of it's Esmeralda, right? Um, Esmeralda. Um, Esmeralda is. She was found by Wallenstein in a slave pen, awaiting sale. Um, and she was almost certainly going to be sold to the neo neo Azteca, who would um, cut her heart out and uh, turn her into a bowl of chili. Uh, remember, we shouldn't be judgmental about other cultures. You know? <laughs> Wallenstein hates slavery, hates you know the whole thing. There's there's just not a lot she can do about it. But she does commandeer um, the slaves there, liberates them. Like, she takes some with her, but in general, she just liberates them. Uh, and one she takes with her is Esmeralda. Esmeralda is originally from the same part of Panama that Carrera's wife's first ancestor on the planet came from, um, which is a, an area not too far from David, Cherokee in, um, in the western part of Panama. Esmeralda is a dead ringer for Carrera's dead wife, but she's very young and he knows he's too old for her. It was just, it was kind of a cruel trick I played on him actually, to sort of give him his wife back, but in a way that he can't use, partly because he's too old and partly because he's already married. Um, is she, she the uh, is she the the woman who's on the cover? Is this Esmeralda or is it's, it? It's Esmeralda, but she doesn't necessarily doesn't look that necessarily much. look like this. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> that, that's that's a uh, model that Kurt Miller, the cover artist, from. yeah, that's one of Kirk's. Um, that's probably how he pictures her. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, he knows exactly what Esmeralda looks like, but he uses different, you know. Yeah. Um. So. Uh, Esmeralda, her sister, Esmeralda would have been, had her heart cut out on Augustus's Arapacus in Rome, except that her older sister took her place. Um, and so I, I think I hinted at some horrible fate befalling her parents, too. So um, she may, she feels gratitude to Marguerite for saving her and, and loves Marguerite like a mother, but she hates the system. She hates everything about it. So when she's sent down uh, by Marguerite to... Um, Marguerite is Marguerite Wallenstein. Wallenstein, yes. Yeah. Um, when she's sent down there as a, um, 
a sort of liaison, she goes and finds a, a Balboan recruiting station in Santa Josefina. And um, sort of asks, it, it, it's more hitting around the, beating around the bush than this, but sort of asks, how can I help? Well, Fernandez, Carrera's chief of intel is on the, like flies on shit. So she is recruited as an intel operative. She's not the only source of intel that they've got from that, um, from that ship, but the other one, they don't control. I don't think I ever said what the other one is. I suppose I can now. Um, the big Kurosawa in uh, the UEPF Spirit of Peace's con main conference room doesn't just receive signals, it sends them too. So the Yamatans who made the television have um, intel of every major meeting held on the uh, on the flagship and they pass on what they feel like. Sigant sort, source yeah. as they say, all right. Um, so uh, anyway, Esmeralda becomes a spy. She doesn't even know about Carrera. Well, she knows he exists, but she hasn't met him yet. Uh, she doesn't meet him until one of her friends in Santa Josefina is killed in a, um, a guerrilla. Well, she's not just killed, she's murdered um, in a guerrilla attack. A bunch of people who are helping, uh, who are local staff of the UEPF's embassy to put against a wall and shot. Uh, as a, uh, a reminder, don't cooperate with the enemy. Our arms reach wall. That upsets Esmeralda and she wants to drop out of the, the whole thing and they could try to force her, but that might backfire. And so Carrera rather stupidly takes a trip to meet her. Uh, it is stupid too. He gets away with it, although his pilot gets shot. Um, but it, he doesn't get a commitment necessarily to help, but she does decide to help ultimately. And yeah, when you see her on that cover, she has just shot her lover on the ship and is holding the bridge of the flagship hostage so that they don't interfere with something important. All right. So the, um, all right. So we have another big character in the book um, is uh, Carrera's son, Hamilcar. He is, uh, he's pretty cool. Um, and uh, at this point he's, he's, He's revered by certain groups. <laughs> yeah, the, the um, when he was, he looks like a profile of a silver plate held by or plaque held by a particular group in Pashtia, who, like everyone else, came from Earth. Um, and these people think they're descended from soldiers in Alexander the Great's army, and they're based on the Kalash of Afghanistan. Who are dying people, uh, apparently, with some very odd cultural mandates. Um, I guess, and Alexander, Alexander stop anyway, Tom. Just to aside, um, huh? the end is started. How far past Afghanistan to the end? Oh, okay, all right. Um, and uh, fought at least one battle. Uh, along the Indus River, and then his army, I think he got past it, his army mutinied. We're not going any further. But to them, Alexander's a god, and the profile looks the same. So um, one particular woman of this group recognizes the similarity and immediately decides that and she's very smart. Or she's a witch, we're really not sure. Um, but she knows things she's not, she puts things together very well. Or she's a witch. 
Um, and she immediately decides he's a god. Uh, Carrera sends him to that tribe more or less for safekeeping at a uh, kind of dangerous time in Balboa. And they worship him. And they select a dozen young girls to be his brides once he's old enough. Uh, and uh, he's got the complaint I think every pubescent boy would like to be able to make. The girls are just too demanding. Yeah, I wish my uh, dad had done that for me. He just didn't send me to, to the tribe that worships me. Yeah, really. Um, yeah, so. And the kid knows he's not a god. He doesn't try to pretend he's a god. He tells him he's not a god. They don't care. As far as they're concerned, he's still a god. Um, well, he's, uh, I mean, he's a chip off the old block in certain ways in that he, he, he's a very brave guy. And uh, he's got a lot of um, uh, basic intelligence about how to... Uh, He's probably got about as much talent for military things as his father does. He's not generally as ruthless as the old man is. I mean, Carrera can be kind if he happens to think about it, but he doesn't think about it all that often. The kid is more likely <coughs> to think about it. He can also be just as ruthless. I mean, he's 11 years old when he has um, his military escort kill about a thousand um, men from various villages that are uh, that attacked his, his calling and um, there, there's no particularly good way to put it he enslaves the surviving families and then he takes care of them and arranges good marriages for them but the only relationship in this part of the world that's possible is you know um, friend and ally enemy and slave and he's stuck with what he with that uh, but he does take care of him out of his own pocket, which is a pretty good thing for a 10-year-old kid to do, 11-year-old kid. Yeah. Well, he's, he goes through quite an adventure in the book, which we don't want to spoil. Um, but uh, if he survives, uh, I, I have a feeling you have a future in store for him. Uh, if I get back to it, um, if I live long enough and I get some other things done that I want to get done, um, yeah, the liberation of, of old earth would be a good thing to do. Well, uh, it's sitting there waiting for you to get back. <laughs> I've got a lot on my plate right now. Yeah. Some of it's self-imposed. Um, and uh, so if I do get back to it, it'll be a few years anyway. That was part one of a two-part interview with Tom Crapman. Part two will be available on next week's podcast. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years, they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the star kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. 
but now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. Missile launch, Rear Admiral Rosiak announced sharply. Estimate 824, repeat 824, inbound at 451 KPS squared. Time of flight, 2.7 minutes. Jane Isotalo's head snapped around from her conversation with Kimmo Romales. She dreaded this moment, and frankly been astonished it hadn't happened earlier, but confirm that missile count. Tracking's confidence is high, ma'am, Rosiak replied, looking up from the master plot to meet her gaze. That can't be all they've got, ma'am, Romales said quietly. Maybe not, but it's damned well more than even those big-ass cruisers of theirs should be able to launch from internal tubes. Isotalo's voice was equally low. She turned to the maneuvering plot, eyes focused and intense while her mind whirred. All the reports and analyses insisted that Manti capital ships routinely threw thousands of missiles at their opponents, and there was no way in hell these people weren't operating with pre-deployed pods of their own. Not when missiles were the Manti's hammer of God. Admittedly, these Mantis were only heavy cruisers, but that many missiles couldn't have come from ten cruisers' internal tubes. They had to have been pod-launched, yet the numbers seemed ridiculously low if they were coming from a huge stack of pods, unless... Maybe they don't have enough control links, she said. Romales cocked his head at her, and she shrugged. So far, we don't have any hard evidence of how many birds a single one of their cruisers can manage and all the really big launches we know about have been handled by capital ships. Except for Spindle, maybe, and that was a launch from planetary orbit. God only knows how many platforms they had controlling that one. That's true, ma'am, but don't forget the reports that they can launch off-bore. We just got confirmation they can launch counter-missiles that way, and that argues pretty strongly that they can launch ship-killers the same way. And if you crunch the numbers, this sounds like it could be a double salvo from each broadside. Hell, maybe even their chase tubes, too. I'm wondering if they might have designed the damn things to handle double broadsides. Stack them, you mean? Isotalo considered that, then nodded. Could be. It'd be a logical stepping stone for heavier salvo density on something that can't carry their friggin' pods internally, at least. They'd have to stagger the light-off sequence a bit, but we'd never see them at this range till their impellers went live, so how would we know they had? Her eyes narrowed. But if you're right, that might mean this is the biggest salvo they have the channels to manage, even launching from deployed pods. And it would be nice if there was some limit on their damned salvo densities, she added mentally. Could be, ma'am, the rear admiral agreed. On the other hand, they might just not want to piss away any more birds than they have to out here. It was his turn to shrug. And maybe it's all they think they're going to need, too, she said more bitingly then raised her voice and looked at Rosiak again. Projected targeting, she requested. Hard to say this early, ma'am. It looks like they're coming in on Vice Admiral Bonrepo, but that could be evasive routing. Probably is, actually. Her tone was almost absent this time, and she looked back at the maneuvering plot. Thirty seconds since the Mantis launch. Execute two-step in seventy seconds from Mark, she said. All task groups will initiate translation, but if your projected targeting holds, 
Group 3 will abort and hold position here in N-Space. I hope you're ready to punch that button, Randy, Commodore Lessum said as the squadron's missile launch slashed toward its target. If he'd chosen to dip into the missile pod's tractor to the hulls of his ships, the older cruisers could have added more than 600 additional missiles to his attack. And he'd been tempted to do just that, on the theory that 1,500 Mark 16s would turn any Solarian battle cruiser squadron ever built into wreckage. Unfortunately, there was no way in hell he was going to hit anything under the current circumstances, unless the Sali commander guessed very wrong about his target selection, and Picador was specifically designed to help the other fellow guess correctly. Under the circumstances, he wasn't about to waste any of the pods limited to his ships, so he'd elected to rely solely on his cruiser's internal launchers. The Saginami Sea mounted 20 tubes in each broadside, and its telemetry links were designed to stack 40 missile salvos of Mark 16s too deep. So ships like Klaus Fleming routinely launched 80 missiles at a time. She'd also been designed with a 60% control link redundancy, as a hedge against battle damage, and to let her ring maximum utility out of the RMN's missile pods. A Saginami B-class cruiser actually mounted two more tubes than a Charlie, counting its chase armament, and had also been designed to stack salvos, which gave it stacked salvos 84 missiles deep, although it had only about half the Charlie's control link redundancy. The Bravos weren't equipped to fire the Mark 16 with its internal fusion plant either, but they were armed with the Mark 14 extended range missile with its enhanced endurance impeller nodes. The Mark 14 had only 56% of the Mark 16's powered range, and its onboard power budget was much lower, which impacted things like ECM capability. But even with those limitations, it had 80% more powered range than the cataphracts the RMN had discovered in Massimo Filaretta's magazines. Inferior to the Mark 16 and the Mark 23 they might be, but they were superior to anything the Sollies had, and more than enough for his present purposes. And it would be really nice if those people were clumsy enough to let us actually hit them, too, he reflected. Not going to happen, though. Bastards were trying to sneak one in on us, ma'am, Rear Admiral Romales observed as the entire Manti Salvo swerved at the last possible moment, shifting target from Vice Admiral Bonrepo's TG-1027.1 to Vice Admiral Tsukahura's TG-1027.2. And it's going to bite them on the butt, Isotalo agreed studying the attack's geometry with profound satisfaction. The Manti missile's course change had placed Helmut Santini's TG-1027.3 well outside their envelope. Even at their acceleration, they couldn't reorient to acquire his ships, given the separation she'd inserted between her task groups. Calm, confirm two-step abort to Admiral Santini, she said. Yes, ma'am, Commodore Adkadito, her communications officer, acknowledged. I'll probably piss Helmet off by belaboring the obvious, Isotalo said quietly to Romales, but it never hurts. True, ma'am, the chief of staff replied. The Manticoran missiles were barely 15 seconds from detonation, but Romales seemed unperturbed by the looming destruction of a third of TF-1027's battlecruisers. With good reason, Isotalo thought, with a glance at the digital time display. In just about... Why am I not surprised, Commodore Lessum observed, as two-thirds of the Solarian warships disappeared into hyper five seconds before Kruron 912's missiles reached attack range. George, send Sopo and Obusier through to Ajay. Aye, aye, sir, Lieutenant Gordon acknowledged, and Lessum turned to Commodore Kivlikan. Start the clock, Randy. Aye, aye, sir, 
Executing in 280 seconds. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and a hypersonic missile system that also delivers excellent Central American, Tex-Mex, and Italian dinners to his bunker commissary, plus thanks, praise, and gratitude to Tom Kratman, author of Days of Burning, Days of Wrath. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars 